Hello and welcome to another episode of the Unboxable Unstoppable podcast. As always, we are very excited to have a guest with me today. This guest is quite special to me. Um, we're very old friends and we've had this kind of parallel life of various subcultural things throughout mostly youth but still our musical tastes intersect our clubbing life used to intersect we actually worked together in a really interesting place called remo long long time ago when we were extremely young and um i'm very excited to present kimberly crofts and i will let kimberly explain who she is and what she's doing and then we'll just have a chat like we always do so please enjoy this episode kimberly hello hello good morning how are you? I'm good. As I said before, a little bit tired. I think I might have had too much MSG in my stir fry last night. So, mm. but um, bear with me. Yeah, no worries. I'm sure many of us will understand that moment. I'm sure. <laughs> so first question, who are you? What do you do? How did you come to do it? Tell us a bit about Kimberly Crofts. Wow. Well, life at the moment it's a little different to what it used to be but I'm guessing that that's exactly the same for pretty much everybody in the world but mm -hmm. um uh last year um when the pandemic hit I was working freelance I'm a designer I'll get to that in a second I was working freelance and because of the pandemic all of my freelance work dried up and I had been wanting to do a PhD for quite some time but it just had never been the right time and all of a sudden I didn't have any work. I had a lot of free time on the horizon. I thought, well, now is the time to do this thing. So I put in an application and I was lucky enough to be accepted and to get a scholarship, which was um, pretty amazing. Mm. Um, and so I decided to do this thing that I'd been wanting to do for a while. I had also heard from a lot of people that it was very important to make sure that whatever you choose to do for a PhD, you're actually really passionate about it because you have to spend so much time with the subject. And that subject is um, something I am really passionate about because it's related to climate change. And it's also related to, to people and to helping people be in charge of their own lives a lot more. What I'd seen at the 2019 federal election was that um, a lot of people in coal mining areas had been told by the federal government that the only possible future for them and their families was coal mining. And even though around 85% of people at the time across Australia believed that we should take action on climate, people in these coal mining areas still voted for their Liberal National Party because they'd been told by the LNP that coal had a future. Wow. And like a lot of people, especially in a city latte sipping people <laughs> such as myself, <sighs> could not understand what had gone on. Yes. And um, I, I needed to know what had gone on because I just couldn't see that we could keep going this way the longer that people continue to support the burning of fossil fuels, the, the deeper in trouble we're going to get. So I thought, well, this, this is the thing. This is the thing that I need to, to look at. And um, so that is, is my PhD. I'm looking at a community that is dominated by coal 
and working with a community group there to help the broader community be more involved in planning their future post-coal. This is incredible, Kimberly. So I didn't know this. This is I'm hearing this for the first time. Even though I follow you on socials and I see what you post and it often resonates with me, I don't often take a deep dive into what you're doing. Forgive me. <laughs> but, um, but this is amazing. And this is, I'm understanding now a little bit while we're speaking. And when you were just explaining that, I was getting chills about it because what you're doing is you're interfacing, it, from the way I see it, forgive my layman's perspective, but you're interfacing between literally the coal face, literally the real face of fossil fuels in our world and the potential that we have in the future to make a change that involves being better custodians of our world. And that is no mean feat, especially when we're up against, as you say, very, very powerful political forces, very powerful misunderstandings and misconstrued information and misinformation that is rife in our world. I just think, first of all, I just want to give you a big cheerleading and just say, oh my goodness, how incredible and what great work you're doing. And I am, a, uh, our blog, my blog, which has been running a really long time, is a just a very informal um, spruker of the Climate Council. So, you know, the first thing I will say to people out there is definitely educate yourself and listen to this podcast because this is really important conversation. But also um, get involved, even if it's just like a couple of bucks a week, a couple of bucks a month, or sharing information on socials if you don't have the money get involved. Climate Council is a really good place to start in Australia, but there's millions of those things. Mm -hmm. So um, please keep going. I interrupted you, but this I don't is know. It's so important. So I'm so glad so we're talking important. about it. And organisations like the Climate Council, I believe, have had their funding cut yeah. progressively over the years because of a federal government who are ideologically attached to coal and to fossil fuels. So Yeah, and, and that, that's crucial because they're an independent body and an independent voice which we need on all of our major issues not just this one but mm. particularly this one because without nature functioning well functioning <laughs> uh, we're in trouble you know yeah. in a lot of ways so it, it's not just a financial issue it's a it's a survival issue so let's let's keep going I just I love what you're doing thank you for sharing it with us yeah it's um and the some people might uh, be a little bit unsure about what a designer is doing in this area right so, um so design i used to be a graphic designer which is probably the type of design that most people are familiar with or fashion design or interior design but now i practice what's more commonly called service design which is literally the designing of services and people might think, wait a second, how is that possible? But if you think about design as making things better and making plans to make things better, then it's easier to understand probably how designing a dress might be the same as designing a public service. You basically try to make things better. So in the case of what I'm doing in the Hunter Valley with this coal community, is helping them to design a better life and a life that doesn't involve coal. And I feel like we're all life designers in no, a way. I feel like we all do true. this every day, don't we? Absolutely true. Um, there is some theorists who say that everyone is a designer 
And there's, you know, it's a spectrum, right? There's people who get paid for it who are experts, but literally everybody designs their life. Everybody at some stage makes plans to make things better. Right. Yeah. So, um, and there's a there's a really nice word that I've I've learned um, during the PhD, which is welding, which is a nice way of think of it. So, when That's you design, nice. you're welding. So you're creating worlds. And one of the things that not enough designers do, and probably more product designers than anybody else, is think about what happens to the things that they design after. Mm. So what happens when products end? We were talking earlier about <laughs> our computers, you know, what happens yes. when we're done with our computers? Um, a lot of the time when people are designing, they're not thinking about that end process. There's a great book called Ends, um, Ooh, if anyone's interested, great. by my old boss at Nokia, Joe McLeod, um, and it talks a lot about how because we don't think about how things end, we don't necessarily design what it is well enough and that could be anything from a product all the way to life I mean how many people like to think of their funeral um I know that's a thing isn't it we're not good with endings in western society I feel like it's we're really good at growth yeah you know it's the entropy and atrophy thing right and we're not good at the entropy we're not good at the we're not good at endings and it's so important and there's a a lovely designer by the name of Cassie Robinson in the UK and she does a lot of work in public services and she introduced me to this concept called the Burkana two-loop model, B-E-R-K-A-N-A. And it's a really nice way of looking at the cycle of life, that there is a time where something ends. Mm, Beautiful. And that you... If you you know there's that ad on TV, it's for a superannuation company and the people like loop their hands together. Oh nice. It's like that. That's what yeah. <laughs> right. So you imagine there's one one half of a circle curving up curving down and one circle curving up. Yeah, got and it. And as right. as something ends, then there's people whose role should be the composting. Mm, so, so thinking cool. about how can we take what was before and compost it so that we can make something new from it. Beautiful. Mm. It's a really lovely model. I think you'd like it a lot. And then there's also, I think there's another role in there, which is the midwife, which is then making making something of that that new life. Birthing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's a really, really lovely model. It's one of the ones that I'll be looking at because I think too often in the sort of work that I do, um, designers too often, like you said, growth, innovation, mm. the new, everyone's so focused on that that they forget that they're working with people's lives. Right. And it's beautiful also to think about it as a process rather than a hard line sort of chapter. You know, it's not like something begins or ends. Mm. It's not yeah. that black and white. Like it's grey. Mm. There's a there's a process and there's a sort of forward and backward toing and froing kind of thing that occurs because we're human, you know, yeah. we're not, it, we are part of nature. We don't work in full stops and hard lines, even though that's the way our world has kind of evolved to think about things. It's not actually very real. No. So I think what's beautiful about these, I'm very big on circles, <laughs> all about <laughs> circles because things are circular and we sort of have these revolving circles in our lives all the time and we go forward, we go back, we go up, we go down. 
it's the way that things work, circular motion. It's a martial arts principle as well. Mm -hmm. I'm a martial artist and it's a very important one and it's one that we sort of think in very linear fashion, I think, often in our sort of um, Western philosophies are quite linear. Mm. So I do really like remembering those sort of more circular models. (laughs) Yeah, Western philosophy, very linear and very objective, you know. You need to be distanced from things to understand them. Dare I say it, very masculine. Very masculine in, yeah, traditionally. And it's um, it's really interesting actually going into the academy and finding that there's this still this resistance to ways of knowing that aren't this clinical, scientific, rigorous, objective, distanced model. Mm. Um, and there's, there's definitely people who are doing, um, who are making inroads and there's also a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of Indigenous ways of knowing being um, and thinking that are coming into the academy right. as well, which is really helping open people's eyes, particularly to how important it is to develop relations between yourselves and with nature to really understand what is going on. Right. And I use that language. I've borrowed that language from First Nations understanding, Aboriginal understanding, actually, from what I know of understanding in Aboriginal culture is uh, to borrow that concept of being a custodian. I actually use that when I describe my mission in Soul Mama Hub is to become better custodians of ourselves our families and our environment. And I feel like that's a concept that is so important. Yeah, it's not ownership. You're no. not yeah, you're not trying to dominate um, and to own something and to keep it for yourself. You're thinking about six, seven generations ahead of you. Right. There's a beautiful, um, there's a concept called the children's fire, which is, right. uh, have you heard about this? It's no. a guy in the UK in Totnes, which is a mm. kind of like the Byron Bay of Devon. Um, and He's a fantastic, I'm just struggling to think of his name, but I will put his book on the Soul Mama bookshelf. Rob Hopkins? Not the transition town guy? No, he's amazing, but no. This guy, uh, Tim someone, I'll think of it, but he started a a community called Embercombe and they run training and he's also written books and he's taken, he was mandated by a Native American elder to take a concept that is a Native American concept into the corporate world. And he um, has done this incredible job of taking that knowledge and it's the understanding that every decision we make politically or socially, we need to act as if we are consulting our children, our children's children for seven generations ahead. So it's every decision must be made with those descendants in mind. Mm. And it's a beautiful concept. Mm. And imagine if all of corporate land was thinking that way. Right. With endless growth for the current generation and no one else. Right. Mm. So that's what he was, Mac McCartney is his name. And he was um, doing that work for quite some time and he's now written books. And, yeah, it's really well worth checking out. But um, I've got his book, The Children's Fire, which sort of outlines it. And it's that same concept of just we need to house our decisions and our understanding and our choices. And this comes back down to just daily choices. It's, we're not talking only about big concepts in big corporate contexts. We're talking also about the choices we make daily and that um, it's not always about making a big change on a global scale. It's sometimes about making a small change and starting right where we're at. Absolutely. And it's all it's all linked. And there's, there's obviously a lot of criticism about how... Um, 
people have been convinced that recycling is enough for them um, mm. to solve the climate crisis. Sure. <laughs> um, and we really need to be taking action at all scales. But for some people, it's just not possible. And I don't think that anybody should feel guilty about not being able to chain themselves to a bulldozer and right. uh, things like that. But, you know, we have, to, we have to be able to think across scales, across time. Right. Yeah. Right, yeah, there's a fantastic TED Talk, Sydney TEDx Talk on recycling and, mm. and some of the issues with recycling. But it's still really important to do it and it's still really important to see the waste that we produce at the very least mm. when you recycle you become aware of how much non-degradable well if you're a composter you do anyway yeah. <laughs> how much non-degradable stuff you produce like if you separate you know the garbage from the garbage and the garbage from the garbage you start to see what's there yeah. and that already brings a transformation of awareness and that already will open your eyes to something and may lead to some change in time. in time. And that's all moving in the right direction. For me, it's about, you know, which direction are you heading? Are you producing more waste or less than yesterday? Are you producing, you know, like I said, it moves in circles. But, but let's start moving in the right direction and, you know, start from where you're at. Mm. I think reduce is the R yes. word that people forget about yeah. a bit too much. I have a friend who is a zero-waste fashion designer. Mm, fantastic. And he, over the last few years, has become more aware about how the growth of the industry in fabric that's made from recycled PET bottles is actually not doing anything to reduce the amount of PET in the world. Right. It's just created a market for it. And then what do we do with that yeah. as well? You know, like that's kind of the, the next thing. And I think that's the thing. As we get more aware, as we become more conscious, we start to think a little bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm. And that's really important. Yeah, know. this year this year, it being a little bit different from, from other years now that I'm on a, on a student yes. scholarship, I've been even more thrifty. But I've always yes. been relatively thrifty. I grew up in that kind of a household. But, you know, I've actually been darning the holes in my T-shirts and my socks, you know, not, not just going, oh, okay, I should buy a new pair because they're perfectly fine and I'm yes. not seeing anybody anyway. So, Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? Once you start thinking like that, it's actually mm -hmm. quite hard to get rid of anything. Yeah. <laughs> I've been fixing chairs. That's my, So I bought these $5 chairs on Facebook that had been sitting in a garage. They're like beautiful, mod, you know, like tw mid mid century modern gorgeous vinyl you know warm oh, up nice. chairs yeah, yeah, but yeah. they're falling apart and the hilarious thing is if you come to my house like you quite likely could be sitting on a chair that's really dodgy so I'm okay. constantly fixing these chairs you know one of them sitting at the bottom of my stairs at the moment but I can't get rid of them because I love them and I'm like why would I buy something new if I've got these they're so cool and I just keep finding new ways of fixing them and then the other day I had I've got one of those armchairs as well with the original fabric you know it's this like fuzzy kind of green oh, brown wow. stripe you know those ones terry sort of amazing and um it fell apart and i was like oh so it took me three weeks to work out how to fix that one but i did borrowed a couple of clamps from the neighbor and you know there's ways there's ways and that's the thing i wouldn't always do that i'm not always able to do the best the most ecological choice but but i look for them and once you start looking it's there like anything you know mm -hmm. Yeah, the word convenience is something that is one of my, it's one of my most hated words. Mm. 
because I think it is something that people use a little bit too much as an excuse for unsustainable behaviours. Yes. And I know that everybody's lives are busy and that there's pressure and that sometimes it's just too hard to do something because it feels inconvenient. But um, convenience means that you drive to the shops instead of walking. Convenience means that you buy apples that are pre-cut in a plastic bag, um, yes. et cetera. <laughs> and I think it's just become, especially in the West, it's become something that we've convinced ourselves that we need rather than taking time to do things. Yes, I agree. And so you fixing that chair, like that takes time. It probably took you as about as much time as it would have to research a new chair and go and buy it at a shop. But um, you're doing something with your hands, you're doing something valuable, you've taken time to actually repair. Um, I think what's interesting about that is the convenience thing often robs us of a lot of joy. Hmm. I mean, the joy of, and I'm, I'm a shocker for this, I'm not a baker, you know, so I often buy packet cakes. And I try to buy the ones that have got paper bags and not oh, plastic yeah. and I try to, you know, I do it in a kind of a semi-conscious way. But actually when I do go that extra mile and have another crack at baking <laughs> from scratch, it's so much fun. Like yeah. it's so satisfying. And the same with when you find ways of reusing or repurposing things in your home, like it's so much fun, that creative yeah. process and so satisfying. And I think a lot of fulfilment that we could have we don't have because we just we just miss that opportunity mm. you know and it's it's a real shame sometimes isn't it yeah I can sew um it's one of the things that my mum taught me one of my most mm, favorite fantastic skills. so and like I can sew really well like I can, can sew trousers with pockets you know like it's amazing <laughs> so, proper sewing proper sewing and I was making my school uniforms um like through high school so um and it's something that is just so rewarding to think oh like I have actually made this it's very very rewarding that's fantastic it's so it's a beautiful thing (laughs) yeah dad taught me to whistle and mum taught me to sew oh how (laughs) wonderful and the thing is I think we often if we weren't taught those things you know and a lot of us weren't like my mother's an amazing seamstress but I'm not and um, I didn't know that about your mum. Okay. Yeah, she's amazing. But she, because her parents were tailors, like not tailors, they were, they owned a fashion line. In fact, my grandmother for years was the lady in the shop, which was Karina Boutique, which was underlay girls in the cross. Oh, wow. So they're well known in King's Cross, Red Light District of Sydney. So like that was my grandfather's business was, you know, what they called schmutters. It's like what the Jewish German refugees did. They came to Sydney. They dominated the fashion industry and they made clothes. Factories, you know, it was named after my mum. It was called Vivian was their label. So, yeah, it's really cool. So she knew how to sew. Like that was, not, you know, number one. So she's until the day my grandmother died, she was making her clothes, custom making them, you know, like. Yeah. But I didn't get it. Like I learnt a little bit, but I didn't get it. But now I'm like, oh, I kind of wish I did. I mean, it's a super hipster thing to do now, isn't it? Sew your clothes. Yeah. like. <laughs> Totally. Well, there's so so such lovely patterns and fabrics mm. and stuff out there available now. So yeah, mm. it can get a little addictive. So I love. I mean, I love the way we're talking about these things because they're all actually a massive part of the idea of transition. So can you talk to me a little bit about that? What is that idea? I know you've mentioned it. Yeah. Um. So 
the umbrella term for what I'm working in is sustainable transitions. And a transition is a change. It's a change from one, one thing to, to another. Um, some people say that transition is more of a sort of incremental change compared to transformation, which is much more radical. Um, and there's, there's views that what we need is complete systems transformation because things aren't really working. Yeah. But in terms of people, that transformation can be incredibly disruptive. So transition is the word that people have decided to use for this process, which is transitioning away from fossil fuel as our key energy source. And there was a movement, as you mentioned briefly before, there's a movement in the UK transition towns, mm. right? Mm. And they, there is actually a transition bondo as well. I didn't know if you, if you I am aware. Yes. Yeah. Very cool. Is it Lance, the guy that runs that? Yeah, I used to I've have a little a bit to do with it. They do great um, films and fantastic stuff. Yeah. yeah. And there's, you'd be surprised, actually, wherever you live, there may be a transition movement group. Mm. And the one, so they've got a really excellent um, uh, community garden here um, behind a, a apartment building just up the road from me. Um, and I, every transition town um, is different because it's very much about the context. It's very much about being rooted in the place that it's at. So what's appropriate for this place to help us become more resilient and more self-reliant? Um, and I don't know all of the principles inside out, but I guess that's the, the key thing, I believe, is how can we make sure that we're not dependent on these global systems um, of fossil fuel generation, of food um, uh, supply chains, that sort of thing. Yeah, so, um, which is an incredible goal, really, yeah, um, yeah. considering the way the world is. Yeah. Did you ever get a Brixton pound? No. So they had in Brixton, the transition movement in Brixton had a currency that you could only spend in Brixton. Oh, so fantastic. What, so what happened was it kept money within the Brixton area. So you could pay your house painter in Brixton pounds and then they would have to then go and buy more paint from a local. Local, local hardware store. I love it. Yeah. And Bowie was on the 10 quid Brixton pound. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> David Bowie on the 10 quid. That's lo I love that. Brixton boy. Yeah. So yeah. brilliant. If you Google it, you can see it. It's a Ziggy Stardust picture. Oh, fantastic. What a beautiful yeah. thing. Yeah. And look, there's lots of ways we do that, I think. Naturally, yeah. we, we do local exchanges of various things. We do exchanges between neighbours of various mm. things if we're gardeners particularly. Right. There's lots of ways we do that, but to formalise that into a system is so cool. Yeah, yeah, we're getting minestrone from our neighbours for lunch today. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. So tell me a bit about, I love how we've kind of just meandered around this topic so beautifully, <laughs> but um, to bring it back to what you're doing, because I think what you're doing is super special, I'd like to understand a little bit about what are the anticipated rewards and results that may occur from what you're doing with your PhD and with the community? It's interesting that you ask this because right at the beginning, one of my supervisors said to me, Kimberly, what's at stake for you? A great question. Isn't that a good question? <laughs> um, and it's super important for a designer who is going into a community that is not their own to consider this question deeply. 
Um, and it brings up a whole bunch of things about what right do I have to go into this community? Am I being paternalistic in wanting to help? You yeah. see this in a lot of international development contexts with white saviorism, where white people, well-meaning white people, go in and try and help people that they see as more vulnerable than themselves. The road to hell and all that. Yeah. Um, so that's something that I've been considering quite a lot. What's my what's my position in this? What do I have at risk that I am putting on the table to do this work? Um, and so I, I, I looked quite deeply at who I am. Um, there's this great academic in the US named Leslie Ann Noel, who has created this thing called a positionality wheel, where you question yourselves about who you are, what race you are, what gender, you um, identify as um, what class you might be now, what class you were when you were growing up. Oh, how interesting. And it's something that as a white person I've never done because I haven't had to. We consider yeah. ourselves as the neutral party from which we compare everybody else, right? In inverted commas, normal. Yeah. We exactly. don't have a culture. We don't have, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but looking at that and thinking, okay, so who... Who am I and why is this thing, why is helping a coal community so important to me? And I was thinking about my childhood and about how I grew up in a small um, coastal town on the north coast of New South Wales and hippie parents and <laughs> um, I went to protests from a very early age against things, against decisions that were being made about our community that weren't going to work for us. So they wanted to put an ocean outfall on our headland. Um, and the place where I grew up is the most subtly point of Great Barrier Reef corals. Um, and an ocean outfall there would have been just devastating yeah. for that wildlife. Um, so that was my first protest at like eight or something. <laughs> and um, so that happened, there was things about the neoliberalisation of schools. I remember protesting against the education minister, Terry Netherall, in the late 80s. And I remember my parents having their house taken away from them by the government because the government had created this thing called a home fund loan where they'd given low-income earners very, very low-interest home loans to oh build a house. And then the government realised that they couldn't make any money from it, so they took all of the houses back. Oh, my goodness, how ridiculous. Yeah. Mum and Dad still live in the house because they're hippies. It's a little bit of a different house and the government didn't understand it. So oh, Fantastic. <laughs> but they're now renting the house that they designed and built back from the government. Wow. But all of these things made me realise that I really resent outside people making decisions for others and not yeah. giving people any role at all in being able to make decisions about their own lives. So agency became a thing for you. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And then obviously there's, a, there's an irony, right, because I'm an outsider wanting to come in <laughs> <laughs> to the, to the hunt. But you're doing it in a different way. It's, I'm very aware of, this of my place as an outsider. Sure. And you've been using the word custodian. I use the word steward. Nice. Or what I'm thinking about doing. So I am going to help steward this community 
through a journey that they're on already. So I'm joining in with what they're already doing. That's beautiful. So you're a collaborator. Yeah. So what? So my position is not like this sage on a stage. Designer. You're not leading it. You're collaborating. You're exactly. stewarding. Yeah. Yeah. Understand. Yeah. And then the um, <laughs> the other thing is that I actually do have coal mining in my family. I um, my grandmother. Um, was doing our family history she's now um, died but my aunt has taken it on my great great grandfather was killed in a coal mining accident in Port Kembla in 1902 wow that's crazy isn't it yeah and I only I I sort of knew that there was coal mining but I didn't realize that he died and um, yeah so it's um it's interesting to think that that is part of you've got a score to settle yeah exactly goodness keep it in the ground people yeah Mm. that's amazing Mm. and how wonderful that process i'm I'm really interested in the um leslie ann no that sounds really interesting yeah yeah positionality students a lot so it's a really simple process but fantastic what a great exercise thank you and i guess the other part of what i'm interested in is so kimberly as far as i know you don't have any children no and a lot of my um, listeners and a lot of the people involved, well, all of the people involved in the membership that I run, the Soul Mama Hub, are mothers. Mm. So I guess I'm really interested in how does this, as, as someone who watches women experience motherhood, I'm, I'm aware you would have people around you who've had children, probably more than haven't, <laughs> if the statistics are anything to go by. <laughs> and if we're thinking about women our age, yeah and um i'd love to know what impact do you see that having we're jumping around a little bit i love i love what we're talking about but i also want to know what do you observe and what do you perceive about the way that motherhood and parents sit in all of this Hmm. it's interesting one of the things that i've noticed over the years in not not having children is just how isolated people who have children can become yeah because we don't live in big family units anymore right you know we've convinced ourselves that living in 2.5 kids in a house in the suburbs is the the most ideal form of life and separating old people from their families and putting Mm -hmm. them in strange places and having Um, babies in hospitals and all of those things yeah. yeah and i and i see that and that's one of the things that I find is the start of isolation in communities, which then leads to a sort of othering where you care about the people just in your household. And this happens even if you're not um, not in that sort of a family unit, but it's just mm. it's so it's so easy to become isolated from one another, which means that when thinking about a community, who is like what is what is a community? I'm not sure if I'm really getting there. Let me let me think a little bit more deeply about this. I think you're really touching on something though, like the othering of mothering, you know. There's definitely <laughs> there's definitely something in that. And I know certainly for myself that um it is really easy to get caught up in our little worlds and forget our place in the bigger, wider one. And also just forget who we are, like forget who we are at in essence amongst yeah. all of that, just as a practical day-to-day, you know we can spend so much of our days pouring out ourselves into our children, into our work, into all the things. 
And then what happens over time is we kind of lose that practice. We lose that practice of self-awareness. We lose that practice of being aware of nature and our place in it, of being the custodians that we are. And that's, I think, for me anyway, I can only speak from my own experience really, but that's where I got lost, you know. And there's so much pressure and I think I definitely have, have, have observed that with friends, you know, sort of, okay, <laughs> see, I'll see you when they're 10. Um, and it's sad, like, because I just see, see these, this person that I used to, to love sort of just disappear. Yeah, um, really on, the plus, on the plus side, I've seen them all emerge again. Yeah. <laughs> much, much more strong and fierce people. Right. Um, What's that about, do you think? I think that's a rallying against the social pressure of being this person that we have decided is mother in mm. society. Mm. Um, there's so much pressure on mothers to be this perfect person and you're criticised for wanting to do it full-time, you're criticised for wanting to do it part-time, you're criticised for doing breastfeeding wrong, for doing this, for doing that. Like I cannot fathom how much pressure mothers must be under socially. Mm. Yeah, and internally because I think you cannot even realise at the beginning of your motherhood journey often that... Uh, the amount of that that you've internalized mm. and so the pressure doesn't only come from externally it comes from the internal interpretation of the external and a lot of that is under the radar it's subconscious so you know popular culture all the things that have influenced us over the years all the movies we watch the songs we hear the pictures we see you know all of that it builds this kind of image of what we'll be as a mother mm. and then if we're not that which we most often are not <laughs> we can fall apart and I think it's a huge and kind of under discussed contribution to the fact of postpartum depression being you know over 50 percent of women will have mental health issues following motherhood traumatic births also because again we're fed this idea of a birth in all of the movies that isn't not only is it nothing like a real birth, it's not helpful in a real birth. Mm -hmm. Like you don't see women vocalising in deep whale-like tones. That's what helps you with a birth, not screaming and shouting and, you know, like all the <laughs> stuff you see in movies. That's not helpful. <laughs> it's just not what works. And we're not showing what works. And I think it's the same with so many things of motherhood. And I also kind of have this weigh-in on this as well, which is about, you know, feminism I think we often feel like first wave feminism was it, it fought for the right to work it fought for the right for women to be in the world because women had been kind of in the home in the 50s you know but i actually really am not sure that's right i mean i, I actually think that feminism was really about fighting for the right to choose whether we stay home or not which is an incredibly you know again neoliberal very high privilege socioeconomically to be able to choose to be at home with your children you know what a ridiculously financially you know inequitable situation that is that's you know we might have um single parenting pension for example will allow a single mother to stay home with their kids you know incredible privilege that we have in this country to have that nonetheless that is a privilege and it's one that is a valid choice you know, but I remember when I made that choice feeling really judged for doing so. Yeah, I can imagine. And it's crazy, um, that stuff. Yeah, it is. And it, because it also, also brings it back down again to the individual. And right. I can't help but I've been hearing a lot about the idea of the universal basic income mm. and what, what that might do. And especially if you could think about it as actually being community wealth rather yes. than 
individual's wealth. Yes. What would happen if a whole community was getting funds and you go, you know what we need? We actually need like more family daycare or we need to be able to have um, more sharing of all childcare duties or something and that means that some people can stay at home and be artists and be um, just creative or just be thinking and contributing to the community in a way that isn't financial. Yeah, this is interesting because what you're touching on now, I think in my mind anyway, what it touches on is the way that we undervalue the vulnerable. So we we kind of seem to want to marginalise the needy. You know, we want the homeless people to sleep in a shelter. We want the mothers who need help to be institutionalised, not to be cared for by the community. We want old people to be institutionalised, not to be cared for by the community. It's about the way that we marginalise the vulnerable and we undervalue carers. You know, yeah. carers are so so paid so badly and they do one of the most important jobs in the world. They look after humans, you know. <laughs> like yeah. It's a really They're important carers, job. Carers of all kinds. So That's right. You know, teaching. <laughs> That's well, right. That's about, exactly right. Yeah. Teaching, nursing, caring. Yeah. And, oh, look, the industries that predominantly employ women. I can't imagine, Elena, why people undervalue them. I know, <laughs> right? So, and, and the biggest unpaid job of all, mothering, you know. Yeah. So, and again, it's not a job, right? But, but the labour, the amount of hours, I, remember, I had a really funny experience once. We went for life insurance. Um, we went in for a financial consultation with a major bank. Mm. And the and it was a woman who was sitting there, and she said to my husband, who had a you know fairly well paid job at the time, "Do you you know we need to definitely insure your income because you know if you became sick, then that would be a huge loss to the family." And uh, <laughs> it came around to my turn. Uh, there's not really any point insuring you because you don't earn any money. I was irate, you know, because I mean there I am like spending twenty four seven hours a day. <laughs> every day of the year working to support our family right and i i went home and i calculated and i'm sure other women have done this i calculated i've written job descriptions since like ironic job descriptions you know if if motherhood was a job this is this is the ad like must be prepared to be watched while going to the toilet (laughs) must be prepared to be woken any moment of the day or night for consultation you know like all these kind if it was a job it's it's ridiculous you know and I calculated all of the services that my husband would need if I wasn't here. Mm. It was worth way more than he earned. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, and this is not a new idea, but like when you have it, actually experience it, it's just insane. Yeah. And I think, you know, what you're talking about overall, as far as I can see, is the way that we generally have to have a different way of looking at care and looking at support community support looking at money and the way we distribute money to support our values and i think at the moment they're supporting the values of a few a few marginal few and um, it would be good if it's the systems in place supported a few more people you know yeah absolutely it's um i've been reading a bit about uh, the idea of an ethics of care Mm. um and i'll just read you this great um Uh, quote which is a description of what care is so this is from two women Joan Tronto and Bernice Fisher and they define care as everything that we do to maintain continue 
and repair our world so that we can live in it as well as possible. How beautiful. That world includes our bodies, ourselves and our environment. And somebody else has said that um, care is a valuable and necessary part of living with and alongside others. Right. Mm. Right. Yeah. And it's an active practice as well, like to care, like you're actually doing something, you're not just sitting back and going, I care for you. Like if you're caring for somebody, you have to do something about it. Um, mm, so true. There was a great yeah. quote I saw a little while ago about, you know, shouting self-care at women who have no care from others. Mm. is like blah 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 it was like a meme but I just thought my god it's so true we so often say self-care self-care self I don't need bloody self-care I need someone else to care you know (laughs) yeah because it's the thing you also choose right you choose who you care who you care for Mm. and what you care for which means that you're also not caring for something else right right and it's it's sort of economies of scale yeah Mm. But it is something, as, it, as I said before, that has been devalued because it's considered women's work. Right. Agreed. And, and here we are tipping into a, com- a conversation around feminism and patriarchal structures and all this, which we could talk for days about, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I love I, I do love talking about this, although I do feel also sometimes like I'm just like I could talk and talk for days, but it is it is what it is. Right. So what I love about the work that you're doing is that you're working within and around and through the structures that are in place. Despite the government in Australia making choices that prioritise coal, despite the financial systems that we live in potentially prioritising coal, you're finding a way through, around and within to make a little bit of a difference. And I, I just really applaud you for that. Thank you. I think it's a really amazing thing. And I, again, like I say, I reckon we could talk all day, but we probably should go and do some other stuff <laughs> and let other people do the same. Yeah. But I lo- I've loved talking to you today, Kimberly. Is there anything else you wanted to add before we wrap up? No, I'm sure that there'll be many things um, that I think about. Oh, I should have said that. Yeah, there will. <laughs> <laughs> and if you think of anything you want me to add, I'll definitely put a post up on my blog on the website, soulmamahub.com. Mm-hmm. And um, about this conversation and linking to the books and the various people that you've mentioned. And um, if anyone wants to know more, they can just head over there. And I just want to say thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for inviting me. It's been lovely. This is this is the lady who was like not quite sure what we were going to talk about. <laughs> and I was like, I'm sure we'll find something. <laughs> it's awesome to have you. So um Kimberly, I'll also put your details if anyone wants to know more about you. I'll put your details also into that blog post. And again, thank you so much. That's the end of the podcast for today. And please share, rate, review, whatever it is that you do to engage with podcasts and get these messages shared around because I think they're really big, important messages. Thanks again, Kimberly. Thank you.